Section 7 of Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Celebrated Travels and Travelers, Volume 3. The Great Explorers and Travelers of the Nineteenth Century by Jules Verne. First Part, Chapter One The Dawn of a Century of Discovery, Seven. Another semi Asiatic, semi European country was also now becoming known. This was the mountainous district of the Caucasus. As early as the second half of the 18th century, John Anthony Goldenstadt, a Russian doctor, had visited Astrakhan and Kislayer on the Terek at the most remote boundary of the Russian possessions, entered Georgia, where the Tsar Heraclius received him with great respect, and penetrated to Tiflis and the country of the Chukmins finally arriving at Imeratia. The next year, 1773, he visited the Great Kabardia, the Oriental Kumania, examined the ruins of Majuri, visited Shirkask and Asov, discovered the mouth of the Don, and was about to extend his researches to the Crimea when he was recalled to St. Petersburg. Gutenstadt's travels had not been translated into French. Their author's career was cut short by death before he had completed their revision for the press, and they were edited at St. Petersburg by Henry Julius von Klaproth, a young Prussian who afterwards explored the same countries. Klaproth, who was born at Berlin on the 11th October, 1783, gave proof at a very early age of a special aptitude for the study of Oriental languages. At fifteen years old he taught himself Chinese, and he had scarcely finished his studies at the universities of Halle and Dresden, when he began the publication of his Asiatic magazine. Invited to Russia by Count Potoki, he was at once named Professor of Oriental Languages at the Academy of St. Petersburg. Klaproth did not belong to the worthy race of bookworms who shut themselves up in their own studies. He took a wider view of the nature of true knowledge, feeling that the surest way to attain a thorough acquaintance with the languages of Asia and of Oriental manners and customs was to study them on the spot. He therefore asked permission to accompany the ambassador Golokin, who was going to China overland, and the necessary credentials obtained, he started alone for Siberia, making acquaintance with the Samoyeds, the Tunguses, Bashkirs, Yakontes, Kyrgyzes, and other of the Finnic and Tartar hordes which frequent these vast steppes, finally arriving at Yakutsk, where he was soon joined by Golokin. After a halt 
at Kyakta, the embassy crossed the Chinese frontier on the 1st January, 1806. The Viceroy of Mongolia, however, insisted upon the observance by the ambassador of certain ceremonies which were considered by the latter degrading to his dignity, and neither being disposed to yield, Golokin set out with his suite to return to St. Petersburg. Klaproth, not caring to retrace his steps, preferred to visit hordes still unknown to him, and he therefore crossed the southern districts of Siberia, and collected during a journey extending over twenty months a large number of Chinese, Manchurian, Tibetan, and Mongolian books, which were of service to him in his great work, Asia Polyglotta. On his return to St. Petersburg, he was invested with all the honors of the academy, and a little later, at the suggestion of Count Potoki, he was appointed to the command of a historical, archaeological, and geographical expedition to the Caucasus. Klaproth now passed a whole year in journeys, often full of peril, amongst thievish tribes, through rugged districts, and penetrated to the country traversed by Guldenstadt at the end of the previous century. Klaproth's description of Tiflis is curious as compared with that of contemporary authors. Tiflis, he says, so-called on account of its mineral springs, is divided into three parts. Tiflis properly so-called, or the ancient town, Kala, or the citadel, and the suburb of Isni. This town is built on the Kur, and the greater part of its outer walls is now in ruins. Its streets are so narrow that Arbas, as the lofty carriages so characteristic of oriental places are called, could only pass with difficulty down the widest, whilst in the others a horseman would barely find room to ride. The houses, badly built of flints and bricks cemented with mud, never lasted longer than about fifteen years. In Klaproth's time, Tiflis boasted of two markets, but everything was extremely dear. Shawls and silk scarves manufactured in the neighboring Asiatic countries, bringing higher prices than in St. Petersburg. Tiflis must not be dismissed without a few words concerning its hot springs. Klaproth tells us that the famous hot baths were formerly magnificent, but they are falling into ruins, although some few remain, the floors of which are cased in marble. The waters contain very little sulfur and are most salutary in their effects. The natives, especially the women, use them to excess, the latter remaining in them several days, and even taking their meals in the bath. The chief food of the people of Tiflis, at least in the mountainous districts, is the buri, a kind of hard bread with a very disagreeable taste, prepared in a way repugnant to our Sybarite notions. 
when the dough is sufficiently kneaded, a bright clear fire of dry wood is made, in earthen vessels four feet high by two wide, which are sunk in the ground. When the fire is burning fiercely, the Georgians shake into it the vermin by which their shirts and red silk breeches are infested. Not until this ceremony has been performed do they throw the dough, which is divided into pieces of the size of two clenched fists, into the pots. The dough once in, the vessels are covered with lids, over which rags are placed, to make sure of all the heat being kept in, and the bread being thoroughly baked. It is, however, always badly done, and very difficult of digestion. Having thus assisted at the preparation of the food of the poor mountaineer, let us join Klaproth at the table of a prince. A long striped cloth, about a yard and a half wide, and very dirty, was spread for his party. On this was placed for each guest an oval-shaped wheaten cake, three spans long by two wide, and scarcely as thick as a finger. A number of little brass bowls, filled with mutton and boiled rice, roast fowls, and cheese cut in slices, were then brought in. As it was a fast day, smoked salmon with uncooked green vegetables was served to the prince and his subjects. Spoons, forks, and knives are unknown in Georgia. Soup is eaten from the bowl. Meat is taken in the hands, and torn with the fingers into pieces the size of a mouthful. To throw a tidbit to another guest is a mark of great friendship. The repast over, grapes and dried fruits are eaten. During the meal, a good red native wine, called Tractir by the Tartars, and Guino by the Georgians, is very freely circulated. It is drunk from the flat silver bowls, greatly resembling saucers. Klaproth's account of the different incidents of his journey is no less interesting and vivid than this description of the manners of the people. Take, for instance, what he says of his trip to the sources of the Terek, the site of which had been pretty accurately indicated by Goldenstadt, although he had not visited them. I left the village of Utsvarskan on the 17th March, on a bright but cold morning. Fifteen ascites accompanied me. After half an hour's march, we began to climb the steep and rugged ascent leading to the junction of the Utsvarsdan with the Terek. This was succeeded by a still worse road, running for a league alongside of the river, which is scarcely ten paces wide here, although it was then swollen by the melting of snow. This part of the river banks is inhabited. We continued to ascend, and reached the foot of the Koki, also called Easter Koki, finally arriving at a spot an accumulation of large stones in the bed of the river rendered it possible to cross over to the village of Sirate Khan, 
where we breakfasted. Here, the small streams forming the Terek meet. I was so glad to have reached the end of my journey that I poured a glass of Hungarian wine into the river and made a second libation to the genius of the mountain in which the Terek rises. The Ossetes, who thought I was performing a religious ceremony, observed me gravely. On the smooth sides of an enormous block of schist, I engraved in red the date of my journey, together with my name and those of my companions, after which I climbed up to the village of Resi. After this account of his journey, from which we might multiply extracts, Klaproth sums up all the information he has collected on the tribes of the Caucasus, dwelling specially on the marked resemblances which exist between the different Georgian dialects and those of the Finns and Laps. This was a new and useful suggestion. Speaking of the Lesgians, who occupy the eastern Caucasus, known as Dagestan or Legistan, Klaproth says their name is a misnomer, just as Scythian or Tartar was used to indicate the natives of northern Asia, adding that they do not form one nation, as is proved by the number of dialects in use, which, however, would seem to have been derived from a common source, though time has greatly modified them. This is a contradiction in terms, implying either that the Lesgians, speaking one language, form one nation, or that forming one nation, the Lesgians speak various dialects derived from the same source. According to Klaproth, Lesgian words have a considerable affinity with the other languages of the Caucasus, and with those of Western Asia, especially the dialects of the Samoyeds and Siberian Finns. West and northwest of the Lesgians dwell the Metzjegis, or Chachenses, who are probably the most ancient inhabitants of the Caucasus. This is not, however, the opinion of Pallas, who looks upon them as a separate tribe of the Alain family. The Chachense language greatly resembles the Samoyeds and other Siberian dialects as well as those of the Slavs. The Cherkesses, or Circassians, are the six of the Greeks. They firmly inhabited the eastern Caucasus and the Crimea. Their language differs much from other Caucasian idioms, although the Cherkesses proceed with the Wogols and the Osiaks. We have just seen that the Lesgian and Chachense dialects resemble the Siberian, from one common stock, which at some remote date separated into several branches, of which the Huns probably formed one. The Cherkess dialect is one of the most difficult to pronounce, some of the consonants being produced in a manner so loud and guttural that no European has yet been able to acquire it. In the Caucasus also dwell the Abazes, who have never left the shores of the Black Sea, where they have been settled from time immemorial. 
and the Ascites, or A's, who belong to the Indo-Germanic stock. They call their country Ironistan, and themselves the Irons. Klaproth takes them to be Sarmatic Medes, not only on account of their name, which resembles Iran, but because of the structure of their language, which proves more satisfactorily than historical documents, and in a most conclusive manner, that they spring from the same stock as the Medes and Persians. This opinion, however, appears to us mere conjecture, as in the time of Klaproth, the interpretation of cuneiform inscriptions had not been accomplished, and too little was known of the languages of the Medes for anyone to judge of its resemblance to the Ascite idiom. However, continues Klaproth, after meeting again the Sarmatic Medes of the ancients in this people, it is still more surprising also to recognize the Alains, who occupied the district norths of the Caucasus. He adds, It follows from all we have said that the Ossetes are the Medes, who called themselves Irons, who assumed the name of Irans, and whom Herodotus styles the Arioi. They are, moreover, the Sarmatic Medes of the ancients, and belong to the Median colony founded in the Caucasus by the Scythians. They are the A's or Alains of the Middle Ages, and lastly, they are the ESs of Russian chronicles, from whom some of the Caucasus range took their name of the Iasic Mountains. This is not the place to discuss identifications belonging to the realm of criticism. We will content ourselves with adding to these remarks of Klaproth on the Ossete language, that its pronunciation resembles that of the Low German and Slavonic dialects. The Georgians differ essentially from the neighboring nations, alike in their language and in their physical and moral qualities. They are divided into four principal tribes, the Carthalinians, Mingrelians, and Schwans, or Swanians, inhabiting the southern range of the Caucasus, and the Lazes, a wild robber tribe. As we have seen, the facts collected by Klaproth are very curious, and throw an unexpected light on the migration of ancient races. The penetration and sagacity of the traveller were marvellous, and his memory was extraordinary. The scholar of Berlin rendered signal services to the science of philology. It is to be regretted that his qualities as a man his principles, and his temper were not on a level with his knowledge and acumen as a professor. We must now leave the old world for the new, and give an account of the explorations of the young republic of the United States. So soon as the federal government was free from the anxieties of war, and its position was alike established and recognized, Public attention was directed to the fur country, which had in turn attracted the English, the Spanish, and the French.
Nootka Sound and the neighboring coasts, discovered by the great Cook, and the talented Quadra, Vancouver, and Marchand, were American. Moreover, the Monroe Doctrine, destined later to excite so much discussion, already existed in embryo, in the minds of the statesmen of the day. In accordance with an act of Congress, Captain Meriwether Lewis and Lieutenant William Clark were commissioned to trace the Missouri from its junction with the Mississippi to its source, and to cross the Rocky Mountains by the easiest and shortest route, thus opening up communication between the Gulf of Mexico and the Pacific Ocean. The officers were also to trade with any Indian tribes they might meet. The expedition was composed of regular troops and volunteers, numbering altogether, including the leaders, 43 men. One boat and two canoes completed the equipment. On the 14th May, 1804, the Americans left Wood River, which flows into the Mississippi, and embarked on the Missouri. From what Cass had said in his journal, the explorers expected to have to contend with natural dangers of a very formidable description, and also to fight their way amongst natives of gigantic stature, whose hostility to the white man was invincible. During the first days of this long canoe voyage, only to be compared with those of Orellana and Condamine on the Amazon. The Americans were fortunate enough to meet with some Sioux Indians, an old Frenchman, a Canadian coureur du bois, or trapper, who spoke the languages of most of the Missouri tribes, and consented to accompany the expedition as interpreter. They passed the mouths of the Osage, Kansas, Platte or Nebraska, and White River, all tributaries of the Missouri, successively, and met various parties of Osage and Sui, or Maha Indians, who all appeared to be in a state of other degradation. One tribe of Sui had suffered so much from smallpox that the male survivors, in a fit of rage and misery, had killed the women and children spared by the terrible malady, and fled from the infected neighborhood. A little farther north dwelt the Recaries, or Rex, at first supposed to be the cleanest, most polite, and most industrious of the tribes the expedition met with, but a few thefts soon modified that favorable judgment. It is curious that these people do not depend entirely on hunting, but cultivate corn, peas, and tobacco. This is not, however, the case with the Mandans, who are a more robust race. A custom obtains among them, also characteristic of Polynesia. They do not bury their dead, but expose them on a scaffold. Clark's narrative gives us a few details relating to this strange tribe. 
the mandans look upon the supreme being only as an embodiment of the power of healing as a result they worship two gods whom they call the great medicine or physician and the great spirit it would seem that life is so precious to them that they are impelled to worship all that can prolong it their origin is strange they originally lived in a large subterranean village hollowed out under the ground on the borders of a lake a vine however struck its roots so deeply in the earth as to reach their habitations and some of them ascended to the surface by the aid of this impromptu ladder the descriptions given by them on their return of the vast hunting grounds rich in game and fruit which they had seen led the rest of the tribe to resolve to reach so favored a land half of them had gained the surface when the vine bending beneath the weight of a fat woman gave way and rendered the ascent of the rest impossible after death the Mandans expect to return to the subterranean home, but only those who die with a clear conscience can reach it. The guilty will be flung into a lake. The explorers took up their quarters for the winter amongst the Mandans on the 1st of November. They built huts as comfortable as possible with the materials at their command and in spite of the extreme cold, gave themselves up to the pleasures of hunting, which soon became a positive necessity of their existence. When the ice should break up on the Missouri, the explorers hoped to continue their voyage, but on their sending the boat down to St. Louis, laden with the skins and furs already obtained, only thirty men were found willing to carry the expedition through to the end. The travelers soon passed the mouth of the Yellowstone River, with a current nearly as strong as that of the Missouri, flowing through districts abounding in game. Cruel was their perplexity when they arrived at a fork where the Missouri divided into two rivers of nearly equal volume for which was the main stream. Captain Lewis, with a party of scouts, ascended the southern branch, and soon came in sight of the Rocky Mountains, completely covered with snow. Guided to the spot by a terrific uproar, he beheld the Missouri fling itself into one broad sheet of water over a rocky precipice, beyond which it formed a broken series of rapids, extending for several miles. The detachment now followed this branch, which led them into the heart of the mountains, and for three or four miles dashed along between two perpendicular walls of rock, finally dividing itself into three parts, to which were given the names of Jefferson, Madison, and Gallatin after celebrated American statesmen. The last heights were soon crossed, and then the expedition descended the slopes overlooking the Pacific. The Americans had brought with them 
a Shoshone woman, who had been protected as a girl by the Indians of the East. And not only did she serve the explorers faithfully as an interpreter, but also, through her recognition of a brother in the chief of a tribe disposed to be hostile, she from that moment secured cordial treatment for the white men. Unfortunately, the country was poor, the people living entirely on wild berries, bark, and the little game they were able to obtain. The Americans, little accustomed to this frugal fare, had to eke it out by eating their horses, which had grown very thin, and buying all the dogs the natives would consent to sell. Hence, they obtained the name of Dog Eaters. As the temperature became milder, so did the character of the natives, whilst food grew more abundant, and as they came down the Oregon, also known as the Columbia, the salmon formed a seasonable addition to the bill of fare. When the Columbia, which is dangerous for navigation, approaches the sea, it forms a vast estuary, where the waves from the offing meet the current of the river. The Americans more than once incurred considerable risk of being swallowed up with their frail canoe before they reached the shores of the ocean. Glad to have accomplished the aim of their expedition, the explorers wintered at the mouth of the river, and when the first fine weather set in, they made their way back to St. Louis, arriving there in May 1806, after an absence of two years, four months, and ten days. They had in that time, according to their own estimate, traversed less than 1,378 leagues. The impulse was now given, and reconnoitering expeditions in the interior of the new continents rapidly succeeded each other, assuming, a little later, a scientific character which gives them a position of their own in the history of discovery. A few years later, one of the greatest colonizers of whom England can boast, Sir Stamford Raffles, organizer of the expedition which took possession of the Dutch colonies, was appointed military governor of Java. During an administration extending over five years, Raffles brought about numerous reforms and abolished slavery. Absorbing as was this work, however, it did not prevent him from publishing two huge quarto volumes, which are as interesting as they are curious. They contain, in addition to the history of Java, a vast number of details about the natives of the interior, until then little known, together with much circumstantial information respecting the geology and natural history of the country. It is no wonder, therefore, that in honor of the man who did so much to make Java known, the name of Raffolgia should have been given to an immense flower 
native to it, and of which some specimens measure over three feet in diameter, and weigh some ten pounds. Raffles was also the first to penetrate to the interior of Sumatra, of which the coast only was previously known. He visited the districts occupied by the Pasumas, sturdy tillers of the soil, the northern provinces with Memeng Kabo, the celebrated Malayan capital, and crossed the southern half of the island from Ben Kalan to Palembang. Sir Stamford Raffles' fame, however, rests principally upon his having drawn the attention of the Indian government to the exceptionally favorable position of Singapore, which was converted by him into an open port, and grew rapidly into a prosperous settlement. End of section 7